Welcome to Dare to be Legendary, a Diversa Partners podcast. Each episode, we feature conversations with some of the brightest minds in tech, including founders, executives, and investors who are entirely disrupting this generation's ecosystem. They are the ones who dare to be legendary. Hey, everybody. I'm Alex Lebo, partner and head of the general counsel practice at Diversa Partners. Today on the Dare to be Legendary podcast, I'm sitting down with Brian Leach, founder and CEO of Ibotta. Ibotta is the leading cashback rewards app in the United States, paying out over $1.3 billion in cash rewards and earning more than 45 million downloads while reshaping the advertising and performance marketing landscape for thousands of leading consumer packaged goods and retail clients. Brian was recognized by Glassdoor.com as a top 10 US CEO among small and medium-sized businesses and was formerly a partner at a leading trial law firm a Supreme Court law clerk, and a graduate of Harvard, Oxford, and Yale. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me, Alex. So you and I first met back in 2013 or 2014. Ibotta was but a fledgling early stage company at the time, but it's obviously come a long way. At the time, I remember kind of making a mental note of the fact that you were a lawyer turned CEO and how that was an important part of your narrative. At Diversa, we've got a thesis that GCs and lawyers in general are actually exceptional operators and major assets to growing organizations. And I think you're an awesome example of that. Um, So with that, I'd love to get into a few questions and just learn about your story. Great. Let's do it. So people may not know this, but going way back, you were the founder of your own walking tour company during your time in Boston. So you've clearly always been an entrepreneur at heart, although the initial career path that you took was in law. So, you know, bring you back to college and just your kind of general thinking and decision making at that time. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people, I went to college without a real idea what I wanted to do when I grew up professionally. I didn't have any lawyers in my family. And yet I was a public speaking person. I liked debate. I liked the theater. I was a tour guide. I ran a little tour guide business. So I thought, well, maybe being a trial lawyer would be a fun occupation. I watched A Few Good Men, and I thought it would be much like it was in the movies. Because I didn't do much homework, I kind of fell into applying to law school to some extent, thinking that would be a great way to to maybe make the world a better place with that skill set and be able to practice public speaking and storytelling. I ended up deferring my admission and law school and going and doing a two-year degree in economic history over at Oxford. And when I got to the end of that, Really, my priority was to find a way to be with my now wife. Um, and so it made sense to go to law school while she was finishing her residency. And so for personal reasons, ended up going to Yale Law School. And while in law school, I realized that there were a lot of things that you could do with a law degree other than practice in a traditional private law firm. And the thing that I liked the most was actually government service working in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So once again, I thought, oh, I'm going to enjoy being a trial lawyer. I had a chance to clerk for a couple of judges and justices, including the Supreme Court Justice David Souter, which was just this transformative, amazing, cool experience. But it also let me realize that research and writing wasn't my favorite thing. You know, So writing a Supreme Court opinion, most people would think would be really cool. And it was cool, but I preferred watching the oral arguments and the people really standing and delivering. And so when I took a job at a law firm coming out of that, it was at a trial boutique so that I could really hone that skill with some of the best trial lawyers in the country. And fortunately, I got that chance. I tried seven or eight cases in the time I was there. I got to build a practice in international arbitration, which was cool because it was kind of cross-border disputes and you're trying cases in London or in Singapore. 
But what I realized was at the end of the day, most of my time was still spent in research and writing. And what I like is storytelling, and especially in spoken form. And so I started to realize that it was more fun to try to persuade people to sign up to work with my company than it was to actually then handle the work that I got when I was successful in persuading them. Um, and as a result, I started to sort of think, well, geez, if I and I made partner at this law firm, if this is what it's going to be like, where I'm researching and writing, and then two percent of the time I get to be at trial, cross-examining witnesses, I don't know if I'm going to make it. So that was how I started to kind of question my decision, which you know, I had been wondering about for a while, but I kind of ran to the end of that and thought, mm, I need to find something that is a better fit. And because I grew up the son of an entrepreneur, I had a bunch of experiences earlier in my life that were more entrepreneurial. And I realized that I could apply some of those same storytelling habits and sales habits, really persuasion to this completely different, but actually surprisingly similar occupation. And so that's how I kind of fell into and out of law. So when does it enter your head that you want to pursue entrepreneurship? And it sounds like there was exposure to it at home, but you know, when does that actually become kind of the genesis story of Ibotta? And I guess worth just asking, like, was Ibotta the first business that you sought to, to start? Yeah. So when I was born in Nairobi, and my father was working at a car dealership called DT Doby in downtown Nairobi. And we moved from Nairobi to the United States so he could become an entrepreneur. So in the family lore was this very kind of entrepreneurial spirit. He opened a company in the front of the mall in Atlanta. I worked there in the summers you know, at this company. And so I kind of had participated in stand-up and all-hands meeting in a sort of technology company environment. I had that in the back of my mind. And then when I went to college, I, yeah, I started this little tour guide business, which was my first taste of working for myself, which was fun. And then when I was thinking about what I should do with life other than law, I really went back to those experiences where I had seen my father build something and create something. And I realized that would be the most logical application of my of my skills, you know, the ability to synthesize a large amount of information in a foreign subject matter, and then put that together and form a point of view, communicate that point of view and try to persuade someone. That's something I've been doing for a very long time. And so it, it was pretty natural to try to apply that outside of my first application, which was the law. Uh, the actual idea for Ibotta came on a flight back from Rio. I was attending a conference there for international arbitration. And I was not feeling it. You know, I was realizing my own low ceiling of potential in that line of work as a monolingual American Denver-based international arbitration lawyer. Uh, and I was sort of just coming from this conference where everybody's speaking Portuguese and Spanish and French. And I'm sitting there like a bump on a log, you know, wondering what my future was at these conferences. And so I started daydreaming about what else I could do with my life. And I saw this woman on the plane. She was taking a picture of her receipts from the trip just to submit her expenses. And I started thinking about all the value of, informa of the information that's contained on that receipt, all the things we buy, what we buy, where we shop, what we paid, how many of them we bought, what time of day, et cetera. And that was why the company that emerged from that was called Ibotta, like a, I bought a bag of groceries or so it's just sure. a bad pun. But it wasn't the only business I was thinking of at the time. There were five or six other truly horrendous business ideas that I was kicking around. And I'd kind of get excited about the idea. And then I'd realize this is, there's no addressable market or this has already been done or there's no way to make money. And I would kind of give up. So I would cycle through these pretty bad business ideas. One of them was safety recall notifications. So when like a crib was recalled, you know, we would notify people. I think there's about 12 people that would pay for that service in the United States. <laughs> there were many other businesses I, that I sort of went up and down on. But the one that stuck 
was this idea of using purchase information to restructure the way that promotions and rewards are delivered so that you could, in essence, prove the purchase by taking a picture of your receipt and then instantly getting cash onto a PayPal account. So this idea of being able to control your own purchase information and effectively monetize that in a way that you couldn't when you're, say, on Facebook or Google, you're just letting the other, now that company is monetizing you, you're just eyeballs. This is the idea that there could be a much different kind of exchange of value where you essentially say, here's information about what I buy. Now you give me personally relevant content and cut me in on the deal. Every time there's a sale that's generated by your promotion, I want to get a piece of that in the form of a reward. And so that idea of being in the giving away money business was kind of cool because there was a, a real moral relevance to that work. I was helping people in a very clear, direct way. Here's money for your rent. Here's money for your food. Here's money for your medical bills, student debt. And I missed that. I missed that moral relevance in my legal work. So it was a combination of a consumer app that I would use myself with something that was very much of the moment, you know, cameras on mobile devices, was something that was going to help people in a very obvious way. And that was why I settled on that idea. And during this kind of exploratory phase, um, do you think there's anything about whether to borrow your words, like processing foreign information that allowed you to kind of like quickly narrow in on what you wanted to do? Yeah. I mean, so when you're coming up to speed on a new case, you are almost certainly completely unfamiliar with the subject matter. It's totally alien to you. You have to come up this huge learning curve and learn the lingo and all the acronyms and enough to be able to have a meaningful conversation with an expert witness, for example. That's pretty tough. And so during the course of my time as a lawyer, I learned everything there was to know about long wall mining in China. I learned everything there was to know about trocar technology and the ins and outs of a patent related to laparoscopic surgical procedures and so on and so forth. I represented a Japanese shampoo company. You know, there, there were a lot of different types of subject matter. And I think good litigators know how to get their arms around those things so they know enough to shape the case and the themes of the case. And when I was starting to research Ibotta, what I needed to do was get a little sort of PhD on the side, like a nighttime private you know, learning curve. Of how do consumer packaged goods companies work? What, how do they allocate marketing dollars? How do they think about promotions? What do they wish existed that doesn't exist? How do they pay for those promotions? How do retailers function? What do they think about coupons? How could they improve upon something like a coupon? How do data brokers like AC Nielsen work? And so as I found out more and more here and there, putting together a perspective on that and then turning that into an argument, basically, what the world needs is X. And then testing that argument out and kind of refining and iterating that uh, was very similar to getting ready for an oral argument in front of Judge Posner in the Seventh Circuit, where you try out your argument and you know, you'd have a moot court and all your partners at the law firm would say, ah, I think you should say it this way or what if he follows up with this? Very similar, you'd go to an venture capital room and you say, here's my idea. The world doesn't have this. It needs this. This is how I'm going to make money. And you get an ounce of, of criticism, or you can view it as essentially free consulting. And you take that free consulting and you revise your thesis. And in the next room you're in, you're that much smarter, more nuanced, more able to anticipate and respond to the obvious objections. Because every business idea starts with a contrarian principle, or else it would already be a business. There's some conventional wisdom that you are defying. And so somebody will always be able to cite that conventional wisdom and your ability to persuade them that it's wrong and you're right, you're in possession of some uniquely valuable insight, is critical to raising money. It's critical to persuading your first employee to come join you when you're nothing. And so that ability to kind of assemble information, reduce it to an argument, and then deploy it to persuade 
various stakeholders, investors, employees, and ultimately clients is extremely transferable. So you've touched on fundraising, you've touched on recruiting, you've touched on sales. I mean, it's amazing that these are all skills that you are in some way, shape or form kind of trained in as a lawyer. Yes. In fact, I wish that lawyers understood how applicable their skills are outside of the law. You know, it's a bit like the movie Karate Kid, where Ralph Macchio is very frustrated that he hasn't learned any karate until Mr. Miyagi explains that all the things he's been having him do are, in fact, karate. just didn't realize it. And it's the same way with the skills you learn as a lawyer. You just don't realize it because one thing that lawyers do to each other is basically they sort of treat each other as hyper-specialists. So they say, well, Brian, what kind of lawyer are you? Well, I do litigation. What kind of litigation? Well, I do some environmental litigation. Oh, really? What kind? Plaintiff side or defense? Plaintiff. Oh, do you do toxic torts, class actions? And so until they drill you down into kind of this box, you begin to think, that's what I do. I'm a bank regulatory lawyer. That's what I know. Uh, Well, in fact, actually what you know is way more valuable and more applicable. And as soon as you hold yourself out to the world as something different, the world is very surprisingly quick to credit that. So I went within two months from going to conferences on the international arbitration of mining to conferences on mobile commerce and mobile payments and mobile technologies, holding myself out as, you know, a tech entrepreneur. And nobody ever said, hey, wait a minute, buddy. Hey, wait a minute. You're actually an international arbitration lawyer. What are you doing here, you interloper? Instead, it was more like, listen, if that's what you say you are, then nice to meet you. Right. So you can actually reinvent yourself and apply those skills a lot more easily than you might realize. This is one of the messages that we're trying to kind of get out in the venture community, certainly kind of amongst entrepreneurs, is that a lawyer is not just a lawyer, right? And then when you spend time getting to know somebody, you understand their experience, their skills, biases, tendencies, all those things. What you get is actually a pretty well-rounded operator. So my next question is, were there times during the entrepreneurial journey or even still today that you did feel that given a lack of formal business experience, the curve was a little bit steeper for you? Yeah. I mean, I think to be clear, there are some habits of mind that are not so helpful that many lawyers have as well. For instance, being very risk averse. One reason why some people go to law school and go to a law firm is because they got straight A's their whole life and it's a very clear and prescribed path. It's quite linear. You make it to law school, then you take the bar, then you become an associate, then you're a partner, and then you're tenured. And once you're tenured, you've kind of arrived and no one can really fire you unless something catastrophic happens. And that sense of safety appeals to a lot of folks. I think if you look at the individual profile of a lawyer, though, they're not all the same. In my case, I started an international arbitration practice. I put up a new website for the firm. There were signs that I was much more risk-seeking. I went to a law firm that had a different economic model that didn't bill by the hour. I moved to Denver when all the other Supreme Court law clerks thought that was crazy. I was going to go do horse and gas law and never be heard from again. You know, so there are signs of kind of contrarian thinking which I think are good predictors of which lawyers will do particularly well. I also think lawyers manage small teams, but in the past, were not always that well trained in how to manage teams. So they were trained how to be great lawyers in the sense of making the right arguments, writing the right uh, brief and responding to interrogatories and you know, the structure and strategy of preparing for a trial. But ultimately, you're a team of five, six, seven people. And if you're the senior partner or even the partner below her, You've got to really know how to manage and coach and bring along the people who don't have as much experience and you can't demoralize them. And I think a lot of lawyers don't learn that because the way that law school used to be, I think it's evolving a lot, especially where I went, uh, where it's now very much focused on the soft skills and executive 
capabilities. But back when I went there, there was very little of that training. So you really learn on the job how to manage. There's also a culture in, in lawyers who are in-house have a culture of a 360 review, just like anybody working in a company would be subject to a 360 review. But in a law firm, there is no real culture of a 360 review because there's a sense of kind of, I'm a tenured a partner and I don't, I'm beyond criticism or improvement. You know, I don't need to hear what you of counsel and associates think about my performance. I think that's a pity. I also think law firms have a, a real dearth of coaching. I think having a coach is really, really important. But when you're paid $1,000 an hour to be right and render advice, and you know, you say you have concerns about your mental health and you have a therapist every week or you have a coach, that can be very off-putting or even stigmatized. So I think there's some things I had to unlearn in terms of getting that coach, getting that therapist. And I would still say, to be honest with you, Alex, while I feel proud of what we've built, my primary strength is setting the vision, strategy, and telling the story. I would say that my managerial capabilities are good, but not great. Nothing that's going to go down in the annals of history. I think one thing about lawyers, they tend to work with really smart people who by definition are also graduates of law school. And when you're in a business environment, you have to learn how to work with people who maybe don't have the same educational background, maybe don't grok things as quickly as you, and maybe are motivated in different ways than other people who are very kind of left-brained. So Working with more creative types, I remember the first graphic designer I worked with, he all tatted up all over his body. My lawyer's perception coming in is, oh my God, how can I trust this guy? Well, I mean, that was the best predictor of an outstanding graphic designer I possibly could have had. I just hadn't worked with a whole lot of those folks. So it's been a learning process. I want to talk a little bit about the GC function. I know that you've never been a general counsel before, but I'm still you know, very curious for your perspective. I'm sure that our listeners are as well. My personal belief is that great GCs are great operators, right? Um, and great operators are great leaders of people. But another one of the kind of theses is that GCs are inherently multifunctional, right? They've got to kind of have their tentacles all across the organization from you know, commercial to HR to regulatory to product. How do you think about the GC function as a lawyer turned CEO? And then I've just got a bunch of kind of other questions like, you know, when do you think is the best time to hire a general counsel? How do you define kind of greatness in a general counsel? But maybe just start by kind of giving us your thoughts on the function that might be slightly different given your background. Yeah, I mean, look, our general counsel is a great example. Sean he used to be my partner at Bartlett Beck with me. I think what's fantastic about Sean and what he does well is he deeply understands the business and how we make money and what our product is and how it works. Because whether there's so many different parts of a business, whether it is a contract that's really critical to your business and your future valuation, whether it is an employment agreement or piece of litigation you might have with a former employee, whether it's a patent that you really need to get issued and you need to think about how broad or narrow those claims need to be, or whether it's you know, preparing you to get ready to go public, it's often pretty hard for one person to do all these things. And so they, they need to draw on other people in the legal department to complement their skills. Usually don't find someone who's got a ton of M&A experience on the transactional side, but also can handle all the litigation elements. You sort of find somebody who's strong in one area and then rounds it out. But the best GCs get to a place where they, they know more than enough to be dangerous about a lot of different areas of the business. So they really can sit back and listen and really think of all the angles and implications of what they're hearing in the senior leadership team. So I think it's good to have that lawyer at the table at the highest level. That person therefore needs to be able to 
kind of hang on lots of different topics and follow the thread of conversation very quickly. So they're up to speed and can kind of render advice without needing to take a bunch of time before um, be able to render that advice. I think what makes a great CC is somebody who you trust, who is not just looking to identify risk, but really looking to find a path forward that is better, you know, beneficial for the business. So that's a huge thing, the no, getting to no versus getting to yes. It's identifying risk and quantifying risk so that you can take risk, not identifying risk so that you can avoid risk, because that's not how business and not how entrepreneurship works. And I think a lot of people wait too long to hire a general counsel because they're worried it'll just be a, someone who says no all the time and they want to keep running and gunning. I think I probably should have hired a general counsel sooner. One of the reasons I didn't is because I was trained as a lawyer and I think I was able to move along the contracts and things. But that's not my highest, best use. and It's not the best way to, to get leverage. It would have been smarter to hire a general counsel sooner and somebody who had quite a bit more experience than I did in the stage of business we were entering. So somebody who had been with a public company, who'd been with a late stage company, who knew some of the, the peril, you know, pitfalls and things to watch out for, would have really helped me and advised me in advance. Um, and I think I've learned that. I also think that a general counsel has to interact with a lot more than just the CEO. She or he has to interact with virtually every department in some form or another. Particularly important that she or he collaborate with the HR department very well. But also with the product team, and when you're going through an assessment of privacy law changes, for example, oh, California just passed this latest privacy law. Okay, well, that has massive implications for everything that our product team does and needs to be subject to certain deadlines on the roadmap because we're otherwise out of compliance with the state of California. We can't operate there. So if you don't have someone who's respected and trusted by the whole organization, then when they kind of sound the alarm bell about something, people just don't take it seriously. And then you get in real trouble. So those are some reasons why I think it's a very, very important role. I think of it as kind of a quasi-business role, not a legal-only role. I think it's definitely kind of somebody who's part of the business development team because you're entering into these contracts with partners. No one contract is the same. It's not like a rinse, wash, repeat. And so the lawyer has to really be involved from the beginning of that entire partnership evolving. And so you need someone who's got a little bit of a good outward-facing sensibility vis-a-vis their counterparts on the other side, can get along with their counterparts. There's a lot of soft skills that the lawyer has to have. They can't just be super smart. I want to pivot and talk a little bit about Ibotta. So you guys kind of made the shift from a direct consumer app to more of a B2B2C performance marketing network, partnering with some of the largest retailers in the US, like Walmart, to power their next generation rewards programs. You know, can you tell me more about kind of the company's journey over time, how you came to identify opportunities like this? that are, you know, real, like slightly tangential, but obviously still kind of aligned with the company's overall mission? Yeah, I think mission is a good place to start. You know, when we started out, our mission was be the single starting point for rewarded shopping. So we really thought of ourselves as being that app where you went if you were interested in savings or rewards. And from there, you went and shopped anywhere online or anywhere in store. And that was a great mission for the first four or five years of the company. We, we wanted to build that free app that paid you cash and really build a consumer brand around that. But over time, we realized that actually what we were doing was broader than that. And we wanted to make room for a broader vision of touching more transactions than just those that happen to originate within our one app. And so we, we broadened our and shortened, we shortened and broadened our mission down to four words. I'm a big believer that if a mission isn't 
fewer than 10 words, it will be forgotten and therefore is irrelevant. Unless 98% of your company can tell you what the mission of your company is, it might as well not exist. Ours is make every purchase rewarding. So I can put that on a t-shirt. I can put that on the wall. Everybody knows it in my company. And the reason why it's important, it says every purchase. And so that means if you are a Walmart shopper and you are making a purchase, we would like to in some way make that rewarding. And that's obviously a little bit of a double entendre, literally rewarding in the case of cash back, but also a rewarding experience. So we broadened the remit of our mission. That's actually an interesting story. I was sitting in a I was being interviewed by Walter Robb, who's one of the co-founders of Whole Foods in front of my entire company. And he said, what's, well, let's find out if you have a mission. And I start to recite this 30-word mission. And he says, well, oh, hold on. We're going to just put you on mute. We're going to ask a few people in the audience, what do you think the mission of Ibotta is? Every single person had a different answer, different mm-hmm. concept. And so he said, yeah, you don't have a mission. So after that, we recut our mission, broadened it and shortened it. And when we did that, it allowed us to realize that what we really need in our business was scale. So people love the efficiency of a performance-based marketing unit. They love not having to pay for clips or prints or impressions. And they also love the ability to target and measure how incremental the sales lift was and to do something that led to the in-store sales lift or online sales lift. That was all great. But we were only touching $20 billion a year of purchases where it's a $1.1 trillion industry. And so we needed a lot more penetration, a lot more reach. And there was no way we were going to do that with our own direct-to-consumer app. Because while we have 12 million active users on the platform, they're never going to represent a trillion dollars of purchase. That There's 250 million adults in the country. We're talking about 12 million of them. So we needed to reach more. And the best way we could think of to do that was to sort of piggyback on the audiences of Walmart or Dollar General or Kroger or whoever else had tens of millions, or in the case of Walmart, more than 100 million people visiting their digital properties with regularity, if we could power that behind the scene in a sort of, as you say, B2B to C or white label fashion, we could reach way more people and would have the secondary benefit of not having to buy those users or pay to retain those users. So higher margin opportunity. And as you think about growing your business and you get to 100, 200 plus million dollars of net revenue, now you got to think of ideas that are big enough that can generate a 20, 30% a growth year over year on a much bigger baseline. And when you're a $5 million company growing 30%, you need an idea that's worth you know, a couple million bucks. If you are a $200 million net revenue company and you're trying to grow 30%, now you got to find an idea that's worth 65 million bucks. That's pretty hard. And so you got to think on much grander scale about what you can sustain uh, that kind of growth rate on. And that for us was a network. The last thing is just valuations of late stage companies are partly a function of how much people think you can compete away that profit over the future of the company. Well, in a network or a platform, it's kind of a winner-take-all proposition. You have one coordinating function providing the distribution and anti-stacking and rational measurement of all of these rewards across hundreds of publishers. It's the reason why there's one trade desk to handle display ads on the open web. You don't have six of them because you really have one convenient place where all those publishers are available. And With Ibotta, we feel like we're performing a similar kind of air traffic control function in the next generation loyalty space. So for us, building a network was attractive from the standpoint of a sustainable market advantage. And it also meant that we could have better profit margins and more scale. So over a five-year period, we put in place, much as Netflix did in moving from their DVDs to their streaming business, uh, we saw the sort of horizon edge of our first business, which is profitable. 
but it wasn't going to continue to grow at the rate we wanted. So we let that continue to be profitable, but let the growth rate attenuate. And then we began investing on the next frontier of our business, which is called the Ibotta Performance Network, which you allude to. And we started by bringing in Kroger and then Walmart and Dollar General and now others who now are all part of this network. And our goal over the next five years will be to add more and more publishers or nodes onto this network and bring in more and more types and depth of advertising content. So instead of just being grocery, now we're working in toys and beauty, apparel, electronics, home improvement, et cetera. So it's replicating this network of loyalty across multiple different industry verticals. I can't let you go without asking a little bit about what's happening in Denver. During the pandemic, Denver got a ton of attention as a great place to live and work and kind of as an up-and-coming technology hub. What do you think that kind of growth for the ecosystem looks like over the next several years? And what's the role that I bought is playing? I think we're at a difficult crossroads right now in Denver, as we are in a lot of big American cities. If you look at Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, Austin, they face a lot of the same challenges. For one, the fact that the technology industry has moved to a hybrid model means that there are a lot fewer workers coming into the downtown area. And that's good in a lot of ways. We've, we now hire a much more from a much more broad base of talent. At one point, we had 100,000 square foot of space in downtown Denver. I'd say right now we're occupying you know, enough for 50 people or so on a Friday. So out of, out of 1,000 employees, not many of them are coming to downtown. And that ends up having this doom loop quality where... The services downtown uh, don't remain strong. The ridership on public transit suffers. You have small businesses closing. And so people just are just staying in their bubble or staying in their private spaces and not going into these public downtown spaces, which then means there's not as much revenue generated for future using uh, growth and expansion of public uh, ridership. It means that with fewer people going down there, patronizing these shops, more of them close. And it just sort of it becomes this vicious cycle. So it's very important that we stop that in a, in a number of different ways. I think one of those ways is find ways to get back together where we can without losing the benefits of flexibility. I think one of those ways is um, to make sure we try to hire first if we can in, in places where we do have an office presence. So that, that opportunity of hybrid is still there while still always hiring remote because we need the talent and capabilities that people have, and not all of them live within a 20-mile radius of Denver, Colorado. So it's striking that balance in a way that I think is more beneficial, not just for us, but also for the city that we call home. Um, and then I think it's about being becoming civically engaged. I'm uh, somebody who takes great pride in being outspoken about a variety of different issues that I think have a nexus to our culture, whether that is uh, something relating to diversity, inclusive, inclusivity, whether that is something relating to reproductive rights for our employees or whether it relates to just who's going to lead our city for the next eight years, our headquarters city, Denver. I'm pretty outspoken about that. I try to make sure I create a a psychologically safe environment for people to have different points of view, support different candidates, which we do. But I also exercise my own right of free speech and I'm outspoken. And I think that that shows my children and and all my friends and, and also my employees and colleagues that uh, I care about something more than just my business or myself, which is a form of service, which I think is valuable. And we have a problem with homelessness. We have a problem with addiction. We have a problem with downtown public safety. Why is that somebody else's problem? I feel like as a civic leader, a major employer in the city, it falls to me to help do my part to, to solve that. Um, and so I am, I'm excited to be part of that solution. I think we've got a, a tremendous community that people want to sort of see get back on its feet. We have great bone structure here. We've 
natural uh, world is fantastic with the third busiest airport in the entire world. It's true. Google it. Wow. And you know, that's, that's pretty great. So I'm, I'm optimistic, but I will also tell you, this is the worst we've been in the 16 and a half years I've lived here. So before we wrap, I just want to get some kind of parting advice for you, for you know, founders as it relates to company building. I'm on the topic of you know, legal and kind of working with lawyers or elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is that if you're going to found a company, I think understand that it's a very long journey that is going to be full of enormous disappointment as well as elation. And that is normal. And there's nothing wrong with the feelings that you're having of being complete and utter imposter who has no idea what you're doing. That's how everybody feels. Some of us are better at hiding it than others. Relatedly, I would find a strong emotional and mental health support structure, whether that's your partner, your friend, your best friend, or whether it's a therapist or a coach. I value having therapists because it's not always a place I want to take my problems to my marriage or to my friends, or for that matter, I can't share things with my board or my colleagues. And so finding other entrepreneurs can be a great outlet. Other founders who can really relate to the really just difficult parts of doing this job. We often glamorize the job and there are parts of it that are great. I mean, you ultimately are out there on the on your own steam with your own ideas and your own choices and you work for yourself. And that's about the most American thing you can possibly do. And I would never trade it for anything. And it's exceptionally difficult. It's way easier. It looks a lot easier from afar than it actually is. I love the, the little meme. It says, we didn't do this because it was easy. We did this because we thought it would be easy. <laughs> it is not easy. And, and as you go through it, no matter how smart you are, you realize there's a great deal of luck. And there's also a great deal of just hanging in there and persevering and showing up one more day for that good break to happen. As far as lawyers, I think lawyers who are thinking about being a founder of a company, don't found a company in the legal tech space just because you were a lawyer. You can do it. You can get out of legal and go into any number of other subject matters. You're perfectly capable of coming up to speed on that. You can find people that can complement your skill set. So, so what? You didn't go to business school. I didn't go to business school. You would hate to see my best effort at an Excel spreadsheet. So what? You don't write any lines of code. I can't write a single line of code. Doesn't matter. What can you do? Well, find people that need that skill and either join their team or find people that have those complementary skills and put them on your team. There are ways to kind of learn these things by being around them. Like I've learned enough to be dangerous on, when it comes to product management and how to develop a product and how to, how to think about a mobile app, UX and wireframing and so forth. I've learned enough to be dangerous to know how the world of promotions work in consumer packaged goods companies. So don't despair if you don't know those things on day one. There's a way to go and find those things out. And then try to avoid watching triumphalist or reading triumphalist literature about being an entrepreneur. There's a whole lot of what I call painting the bullseye, which is where somebody fires wildly into the air, into the night sky, in the darkness, and then under cover of darkness, they go find the bale of hay that their arrow happened to hit and they paint a bullseye around it. And then the next morning, they show it off to all the people to look at my marksmanship. That's kind of how being an entrepreneur is, right? And so anybody who tries to tell you that they knew just exactly where they were going and that they hit the mark is doing a form of violence to you and engaging in a very profound degree of revisionist history. So to me, you know, that dissuades and discourages a whole lot of people. And it shouldn't because there is intrinsic value in the process of trying to create something. You learn a lot about who you are. Win, lose, or draw, it's still exercising that right side of your brain, that creative side of your brain that maybe you don't get to exercise in, in just making arguments as a lawyer. So 
I would say I wish the world had more lawyers willing to take the plunge. The last thought I'll leave you is that being a lawyer is a form of privilege. And I have many layers of it, right? I'm a cis white male, you know, heterosexual male who went to Harvard, Oxford, and Yale. And I have every layer of privilege there is. And I'm also a lawyer, which gives me an extra layer of privilege. And one of the reasons why I decided to start a company is I realized that with that amount of safety net, I have almost an obligation to take a risk because if I can't take a risk, then who else can? I mean, I have, I'm, yeah, I'm on the trapeze, but I got a very nice regulated monopoly that I'm a member of that I can fall back on if it doesn't work out. So I wish more people saw it that way than do, but I think increasingly you're finding more people being willing to take that plunge. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. I think we all learned a lot and it was just it was great to get your insights and everything from the kind of role of general counsels and, you know, growing technology companies to what's happening in Denver to just kind of entrepreneurship as a whole. So this was amazing. And I really appreciate you spending time with us. It was my pleasure, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Dare to be Legendary brought to you by Diversa Partners. Feel free to check out the show notes for resources that we've mentioned throughout the episode. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, share with friends, and leave us a review. This helps us get content to more listeners like you. Thanks again, and stay tuned for our next episode.